uh live yes indeed we're live welcome welcome everyone my name's craig fenton and i'm joined today by neil malarkey famous comedian author entrepreneur there you are for a fireside chat i don't have a fire but i i do have brightly colored broccoli over here so you just imagine that's engulfed in flame uh that'll that'll fit the bill um welcome neil i'm going to give you an introduction if i may uh, Neil is the co-founder of the Comedy Store Players. He co-founded it with Mike Myers and Paul Merton, a long-running comedy show. If you haven't seen it at the Comedy Store in Piccadilly, I do recommend it. And author, uh, Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills and Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy. Those are two different books. I think Neil's got uh, at least one of them with him uh, today. Um, I'm told a very... Uh, there, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. And, there, and there's the other one, fantastic, both books. I will link them below, by the way. I'm pointing down. Uh, a table tennis champion. Do you have your small frames picture there? There you go. A few years ago, that one, Neil. Um, the CEO of Improv Your Business. So not only a comedian extraordinaire, but also an entrepreneur uh, who's ported these skills over into the corporate training world. And, of course, right now in lockdown, doing it virtually an actor and comedian in uh, numerous films and TV shows, uh, including Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery in 1997 and uh, Austin Powers' Gold Member, which was 2002, and many other uh, TV shows besides, including Whose Line Is It Anyway, Doctor Who, Dad's Army, Smith & Jones, Saturday Live, and the radio show BBC Just A Minute, uh, amongst many others has toured the UK and Canada uh, as part of the Malaki and Myers uh, sketch comedy duo and uh, a regular at the Edinburgh Festival, in fact, a Fringe Festival winner in 2002 for the best satire, uh, and that was for Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy. Um, what a history. There you go. There it is again, and I'm going to link it below. Neil, welcome. Tell me how you got into comedy. Wow, that's a big question. So I always loved watching comedy. My brother, I got two older brothers. My older brother was the funny one. I was the little squirt, number three. He was the funny one. And of course he became an accountant. And I was number three and I realized you could get power, influence, if you were funny. People liked funny people and my friends were funny. That was our currency. And maybe that's the thing with all teenage boys, I don't know. But certainly growing up, Monty Python was our thing. We loved Monty Python. We reenacted the next morning and I was thinking, I like the sound of this. I didn't know if I could do it as a career. Who knew? I didn't know anybody did performing or anything to do with theater or TV. But then I got into the school play and I got a little bit addicted to the sound of laughter. And it was a play, uh, uh, The Real Inspector Hound, I think, by Tom Stoppard. And uh, I got to be the guy who turned out to be the baddie. And I would try and upstage people. I had a soda siphon. I'm doing pouring a drink and they're doing real acting over there. And I'm sending, you know, the soda siphon into my face. My comedy mustache starts drooping. People are laughing when they shouldn't be. My brother's there one night. He just laughs at anything I do, even when I'm trying not to be funny. But I realized this was power. I loved the feeling of making people laugh. And the things that I liked were comedy. I liked watching Monty Python, I liked watching Morecambe and Wise. This shows you how very old and very British I am. 
But I gradually began to realize that you could do this. And I heard about a thing called the Cambridge Footlights. And my parents had both studied at Cambridge. My father did chemical engineering. My mother was a maths teacher. And I heard about the footlights. This is where you do sketches. You write sketches. You get to perform them as a student. And I knew about Monty Python. I knew about Peter Cook. There were lots of people who come from footlights. And also later, Tony Hendra, who was the manager in Spinal Tap, one of my favorite movies. But then I sort of dipped my toe in. I got to Cambridge in the end somehow. I started studying economics. I had done physics, chemistry, maths because I thought I'd be a doctor. And then I got tired of being in a white coat and I was interested in current affairs. So I went to do economics. And then what I really cared about was psychology, sociology. This is what I did for my last two years. But I got to be on the Footlights Committee. I failed every single audition in my first two terms. Basically, I couldn't act. They, I, or I couldn't audition, maybe. But the thing where the Footlights was you got to write a sketch and you got to act out your own sketch. So I'm there. September, my first, no, October, my first year. And there's these scary people who are the Footlights Committee. Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson. And I said, exactly. I've got these funny sketches. And they said, and that, the thing is, Emma Thompson, Hugh, Fry, Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, they're not much different now from how they were then. They were just kind of born to it. And Hugh Laurie, he went to Eton and he just was, he was so talented and so confident. And I was just a schmuck from from a grammar school who'd never written a sketch before, but they said, okay, they'll do that one, that's funny. So you go along a Tuesday afternoon, you turn up the Wednesday night, you had to wear a dinner jacket for a smoker. I don't know why, smoking content, I don't know. Um, and you are the new guy and anybody else auditioning gets to do it amongst them doing their sketches, which they may put into the end of year review. And I got one in and I got another one in the second one in that term. And I got another one and another one. And so by the end of my second term in my first year, I was elected on the committee by the committee. And they said, uh, you can come. I bumped into you, Laurie. He was buying, he was buying a burger. He said, you can come on Wednesday, can't you? I said, no, I can't. I'm in a play. I'd actually got into the a play for the first time. And it was called The Petrified Forest, the Humphrey Bogart movie. Uh, and so I couldn't go to my committee meeting. Oh, no. But then eventually I got in my second year to be the treasurer, the treasurer of the footlights. So I got to sign the checks. Now, the stupid thing was the footlights, we made money because we went on tour around the UK. And um, for some reason, I never managed to work out why we couldn't get charitable status. So we used to pay corporation tax. And I kept saying to the senior treasurer, who was a some sort of Don, uh, can we sort Oh no, they were too busy doing research and stuff. And then uh, that if you're on the committee, you get to write the, po the, the panto. So Tony Slattery was the president in my second year. And uh, Will Osborne was vice president. He co-wrote the panto. He went on to write uh, a movie called Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, and a movie called Grumpy Old Men. And so gradually, gradually, I'm thinking, this is interesting. I get to go on tour around the UK. And my dad says, is this what you want to do for your career? And I said, yeah. Now, I've already disappointed him because I've given up maths, physics, chemistry. My family, all scientists, he was a chemical engineer. My mom was a math teacher. My brother did physics, but then became an accountant. My other brother, chemical engineer. So I've left the family in some respects because I'm doing economics and sociology. I'm already a, a, a dark sheep, black sheep, dark horse. Uh, and he says, you want to do this? And he said, do it. Do what you want, because he always wanted to be a teacher. And he ended up being a chemical engineer. He wanted to be a really a teacher. He said, you must follow your heart. And I did. I followed my heart. And I remember my mum, as I graduated, 
uh, my mum on the phone to a friend. Well, yes, Neil, Neil, yeah. He's trying to break into show business and it was awful. It was awful. I was trying to break into show business. And I, I, th I, th I thought there was a way and I was on unemployment benefit. Uh, uh, and uh, luckily we managed to, the Cambridge Footlights, because of the names of John Cleese and Monty Python, we toured to Australia and then ran the UK and I'll get my equity card, uh, which was not what you needed in the 1980s. And so gradually we can start doing this. And we got a promoter to take us there. They taught us around the UK doing freshers nights and um, uh, doing a show. We wrote a play. We thought, well, let's write a play. And they all writers say, write what you know. And so we wrote a play about being in a benefit office, getting supplementary benefit. It's called Feeling the Benefit. We thought it was a great satire. We thought it was like Dario Fo, that great Italian uh, playwright. We thought it'd be like accidental death of an anarchist, uh, but it was not quite as good as that. Um, and then, uh, we did a show late night just to review sketches, which with a title was what we just had the title. Let's do some sketches. And in it was a guy called David Tyler, who's a Sony Award radio producer now, uh, multi-award winner. And he came up with the title of a sketch show called Get Your Coat, Dear, We're Leaving. We thought that was a good title. Uh, but you know what? We were doing this at a small theater called the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill. And there was a guy who saw footlights on our poster. He said, I, I know about that. This guy was named Mike Myers. So he knocked on the door of the theatre and he said, can I help? And they said, yeah, paint the set, sell tickets. So the first time I met Mike Myers, he was sitting in a wheelchair because, not because he's a wheelchair user, but because we'd use all the regular chairs on, on stage for our play. And he was selling tickets. He was hunched over, scarf, coat. And I said, where are you from? He said, Canada. And he said, I used to work at Second City. And I went, oh, Second City, Second City, because I knew about Second City. I knew about the Blues Brothers. I knew about Saturday Night Live. And so then we started talking and he told me all about improv. So, Craig, is that a long enough answer to your very simple question? It's a very specific answer. I really appreciate it. I, I, I have a couple of follow-up questions. And, <laughs> and I should say, please do, as some of you are. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Steve. Do add your comments in if you'd like to pitch a, uh, a question here to Neil. Um, I'll come to the colour-coded bookshelf in a moment because it is intriguing. Did you tour New Zealand when you toured Australia? I'm so sorry. God's own country. I wish I had. It's very yeah. sad. Yeah. Okay. It was well, one of those things. <laughs> we had to go with the economics. Now, for some reason, the previous Footlights groups, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, hadn't done well in Melbourne. And, hadn't, and, and Perth was too far away. So, and, and if there's any Antipodeans or been to, people who've been to Australia, you're going to be just delighted by this list. We did the Adelaide Festival. I love Adelaide. We went to Glenelg. We went to the Clare Valley, beautiful wine producing area. Then we went to Tasmania, Burnie, Launceston, Hobart, Sydney, Mittagong, Wollongong, Rockhampton, Gladstone, and Darwin. Many Australians had never been to Darwin. So this was... This was 1984, before you were born, Craig, but it was only 10 years after Cyclone Tracy. Uh, so it was fairly um, devastated by, by that, but it was, uh, it was somewhere to go. Darwin was amazing. And now you, at six o'clock every evening, you could, um, you'd go, you could feed the fish. And there was one type of fish called the sooty granta. But you can't, who knows what that means? But you couldn't swim in the sea. It was too dangerous, too many jellyfish. So... Uh, uh, and I, I very much want to go to New Zealand. And make, could you make it happen, Craig? 
Yes, well, Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister there, just needs to lift the quarantine. There's a small 14-day <laughs> restriction at the moment. Um, tell me, I mean, you've, you've already run through a list of the um, comedian Illuminati of, of, of Britain. That must have been uh, incredibly intimidating at the time, big names. Um, do you Tell me, do you prefer scripted or unscripted? You said you tried acting and you've done acting. In, in I've, I've done movies. acting and I've written sketches. Um it's hard work. I admire anybody who writes sketches. And there are so many people who write sketches week in, week out, and they're funny and write movies. And I know these things take a long time. Writing, writing comedy is hard work. It's obvious when the gag fails. Uh, so I, I aspire to be like them. I love watching scripted comedy. I love watching Seinfeld and Frasier. These are jewels. These are delicious meals that I just wallow in. It, to mix my metaphors, but improv is what I do. I find it works for me. I love the liveness of it. I love the bouncing off people. I love the joy you have in the frailty and the vulnerability of, I don't know what I'm going to say, but hey, audience, come, come watch me. And my, my partners in the Comedy Store Players, we have a great time. We make each other laugh. It's a different kind of thing. It's more like a takeaway versus a fine meal, which is scripted comedy. So I yeah. can't compare the two. I, you can't compare a picnic with, um, you know, uh, oysters on the Eiffel Tower or something. <laughs> um, other than your comedy store players, partners, favourite comedians? I, I'm very boring with this. You know, I, I say Laurel and Hardy. And uh, not everyone knows who Laurel and Hardy are, but Laurel and Hardy, growing up, it was Morgan and Wise, who are a British duo who used to get 28 million for their Christmas shows. And again, I think it was just two guys, two guys who love each other, but have that sibling rivalry, just like Laurel and Hardy. So I love comedy where there's love. Um, so for me, Frasier, uh, Niles and Frasier love each other. Uh, Roz and uh, Martin, they love each other. They're, they're often sort of undermining each other, but it's based on love. Um, I love Seinfeld as well. And again, you, these, thing, these characters seem selfish and unmotivated by love, but they do have something deeper. And the joy of watching people getting into trouble, uh, for example, George Costanza, he yeah. gets invited to a party and he kind of gets himself really angry. He says, why do I have to go to this party? I mean, I have to take a bottle and I won't drink a whole bottle of wine. I have to go out. Why couldn't I just stay home? It's just funny watching somebody get angry at something that shouldn't make you angry. So that's what makes me laugh. Um, in terms of British, I like watching Stuart Lee because, uh, again, when I was doing the comedy double act with Mike Myers in the 80s and then later with a, a guy called Nick Hancock, um, I watched a lot of stand-up and you just get a bit bored. You, you can see the cogs. So for me, Stuart Lee sort of takes off the clothing of the stand-up and it becomes something else. He's undermining, he's questioning the whole format of stand-up. And so that's why I like Stuart Lee um, movies. The Blues Brothers, I introduced my son to that and daughter recently. They loved the fact that 300 police cars were were totaled in that movie. So um, and Spinal Tap, I mentioned before. So I'm not very up to date. I'm sorry. But when I do see a great stand up like uh, Chris Rock, Victoria Wood, I do stand back in awe. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve Pugh had a major crush on Roz there. Well, and we're going to so come by. Scary. <laughs> Perry Gilpin. I follow her on Twitter just because, because, because Roz, you know, and she's great. Yeah, she is. Um, it would be remiss of me not to go to the uh, live questions here. Ricardo uh, asks, why the colour-coded bookshelf? It's uh, already a life goal of Ricardo's. Uh, tell us about <laughs> it. Well, 
uh, you can imagine on March 16th, my world fell apart. I performed at the comedy store the night before Sunday, March 15th in the UK. And we, we do it every Wednesday and Sunday. Hopefully one day we will again, but suddenly the world shut down. And so my whole world, my career, my life um, is groups of people together indoors. The comedy store, 400 people laughing together. My workshops, 20 people or 300 people in the conference. And so I had to reevaluate and I thought, well, I'll just write a book for two months. And then, of course, it realized it was coming longer than that. And I started talking to my friends who've done a lot of virtual workshops and global leadership over the last um, <laughs> Steve Pugh, all the holes. I'm dropping names. Yeah, I know. I'm dropping names. That's that's what I do. I'm I'm 97 years old. I've been in showbiz, you know, half of those years. I'm allowed to. That's why you booked me, Craig, wasn't it? You didn't just uh, book some schmuck. You booked, <laughs> you booked exactly. me. I, I've been I've been booked to do a thing soon. You know, I said you must name drop as much as possible. Yes, said, yeah. I'll justify my face. Anyway, <laughs> I'm I'm looking to virtual workshops, and there's about neuroscience and about changing the dynamic and our attention span and the two dimensional versus three dimensional, and using you know the chat and the comments and. Flicking uh, audio uh, out, video, uh, you know, going to smaller groups, etc. And then I did it with a group of learning and development professionals. I said, look, I'm just help me. I'm doing a pilot. And I was expecting that to help me with my pedagogic techniques, my educational insights. And one person said, why don't you color code your bookcase? So I thought that's cheap and easy because I was I was looking into virtual backgrounds. And I, I, I found that virtual backgrounds, you know, your hair goes funny and um you lose bandwidth apparently in terms of the sound so i did this you know one saturday afternoon my wife came in and said at last you've tidied your office it's taken a global pandemic for you to do this uh, but you, you don't want to see this side it's a mess so what i found is that it's it starts people uh it starts a conversation it's kind of relaxing to the eyes uh even somebody said i like your virtual background I said, no, that's real. That's really me. So uh, that's that's where the colored coder came came from. A lot of people are saying, uh, I wish I did. Others are saying, how can you find a book? Others are saying, well, I never know what the title is, but I remember the color of the book. So that's how I find it. Well, it's go. a wonderfully appropriate scheme, uh, having just uh, celebrated uh, Pride Month and, and also the thank you, Rainbow, to the NHS. Uh, goodness me. Let's go to improv. Um, it... I've seen you. I'm a I'm a super fan, by the way. I know it's slightly worrying. So um, I did some work for, for Google last year, and then I said, you know, do you know anybody who might want to do some more stuff? And this guy said, oh yeah, this guy Craig. Turns out Craig is very very important in Google Europe, and he comes and says, well, I'm a big fan, Neil. I can't believe I'm talking to Neil Malarkey. <laughs> Forgive me for the accent. So it's quite exciting to head, I don't know, head of Google Southern Europe, whatever you are, Craig. What do you do? I mean, what do you just just hang UK around? Southern Europe, yeah, that's close enough. But you just you just hang around in a t-shirt, isn't that right? What what do you actually yeah. do? Yeah, no, that's pretty much it. Yeah. But what do you want? What do you know about? Do you know you know about engineering and do you know about programmatics and stuff? Oh yeah, a little bit. You know, I'm not a computer scientist, but I'm a, a bit of a technology geek, and I enjoy the application of it. Which is, oh, and thank you, thank you for that uh, accent. Um, I, I I did enjoy it. It's more Australian, more Darwin. Than, I know. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. It's close I, uh, I I try to think of Flight of the Concords, By the way, whom I love in oh, Brit, yeah. Brit and uh, Jermaine Clement, and uh, you have to. It had to be slightly more clipped. 
Uh, that's uh, quite useful, I think. I did have to do a radio show once where I had to do a New Zealand accent. <laughs> the danger is it goes to South Africa then. Uh, so, again, I apologize to anybody from the sub, in fact, everybody, everybody, Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, forgive me. So, uh, thank you for for being my number one groupie, Craig. Well, my, my pleasure. And, and by the way, we're, my family and I are binge watching or re watching Flight of the Concords at the moment. We love it as well. Um, but back to improv. One of the things I greatly admire, and I literally don't know how you do it, is how you think so fast on your feet, because none of this is, is rehearsed. It's all un, unscripted. Obviously, you have good uh, understanding as a, as a team when you work together, though you sometimes, I guess, work with people you haven't worked with before. Um, how do you do it? You can work with people you've never met before. You can tell within seven seconds is she a good listener? Is he a generous performer? Will they bounce back what I give them? And as I've done on some workshops before, I talk about improv is all about the offer. What am I giving you? What are you giving me? Treat what they say as an offer. But actually, people say quick thinking. Oh, look, Ricardo saying 30 times. Thank you very much. Best when Sunday night out in London. How nice. 100%. Um, thank you. So, but it's it's not quick thinking. To me, thinking is what you do when you're writing, you're analyzing, you're adding numbers, you process, you you cognitively arrange things. Uh, improv is a different kind of thing. It's an immediate response. And if I dare say, uh, there is uh, some jazz musicians did, well, they were MRI scans and they were improvising jazz, but they had scans on their brain. And the two parts of their brain that kind of shut down well, I know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm choosing to do what I'm doing and I care what people think. So improv is an, you, I've trained my brain not to think, <laughs> to evaluate, to judge, to think too far ahead when I'm doing improv. I just say, if somebody says I'm a chicken, I'm a chicken. And I think, what kind of chicken? Wah, wah, wah. Have I laid an egg? Am I a, a cock cockerel? What am I? I'm just thinking chicken, that's all I do. So I'm actually shutting down a lot of my brain. And what's interesting, I saw a BBC Horizon show about creativity. And they say creativity is not linear. You get nearer and nearer. You kind of go, oh, lots of ideas. Boom, that's it. And just as you have the idea, the breakthrough, much of your brain shuts down because you totally focused on the one thing. So it's not clever thinking. It's not Oscar Wilde. It's not beautiful writing for Frasier uh, that, we, that we know and, and it's been honed and created. This is a response it's almost, it's almost like sport. It's almost like boxing. It's like soccer, which is kind of, I train, I train, I train, but I don't know. The ball could come to me at any point, anywhere, and that person could be there. I don't know where she's going to be. How can I pick him up? And what should I do? It's kind of you. your intuition is taking over, but you've trained it. And I call it, it's kind of a, a relaxed state of concentration. And the other side of the coin on that is when people say afterwards, I enjoyed that scene you did in the laundromat or the in the taxi, whatever, you say, what? I don't remember that. Your brain, you're in flat, um, to use a technical term, Craig, you might be able to explain this. You're more in flash than hard drive. Does that make sense? Yeah. You kind yeah, of, something like that. You just, you, you kind of don't know what you're doing other than responding. You know that you kind of go, want to go, yes, and whatever your partner says, go with that. And sometimes you just go with something that they, they didn't say, but they did with their body or the way they said it. And you just think, that's the thing I'm going to go with. And I was talking to a, a guy yesterday called Paul Barras. He talked about heightened perception. You're, you're perceiving as much as you can from the other person. You're trying to lock down 
too much of your thought process. Actually, you're not trying to think ahead. You're not trying to judge. Uh, you don't know where it's going to go, but you want to go there with your colleague and you want to make her look good. It's always about how do I make my partner look good? How do I make her or him enjoy the scene? And she and he are thinking the same. We don't know where it's going to go. Uh, there'll be times when it's a bit rubbish. Craig, be honest. Has it been a bit rubbish occasionally? Uh, must have been a show I missed. <laughs> but there are moments of where's it going to go? And in the same way that when you see a magician or a juggler drop the ball or get it wrong, it kind of makes the good bits even better. Yeah. Um, I think you're watching improv in a way just to enjoy people working together. If you wanted brilliant scripted comedy, you'd go somewhere else. And that's why they're different media. Yeah. Yeah, well, incredibly impressive. And a surprising answer, I expected exactly the opposite. So that's a counterintuitive uh, insight that, that you've given us there. What, is, what answer did you expect? Because I could, I, could, I could tell you that as true as well, maybe. I guess I expected there to be uh, heuristics, uh, some mechanics, some basic mechanics that develop, at least in a team that you know well, over time that make it look like it runs super fluidly, but you kind of know where you're going. Um, well, okay, let's be honest, that, that you kind of know that there's some rhythms. Um, in a Commedia dell'arte in Italy, they had Lazzo, which is kind of a little comedy bit that you can go into. It's always slightly different, uh, but you never know where it's going to go afterwards. But, for example, um, a comedy rhythm is ba da ba da ba ding um, I'm walking down the road naked, so there's a surprise at the end. But when you watch improv, sometimes the funniest thing is what is the, what we're all thinking, hoping you're going to say, cheese. Uh, sometimes it's the least expected thing. Sometimes in improv, we just say, uh, you just said that in a funny way. <laughs> and that, that's the truth. It, it's not anything clever. Um, to, in terms of... Um, the heuristics, and I maybe you might have to put that in the chat, what that means. But uh, it's kind of, you know that a story is quite good if the the treasure is eventually found, but not too quickly. Um, you know, certainly in improv, we know that if a scene is just two people talking, saying, oh, look, there's something over there. Yes, I know. Isn't it interesting? Yes. I've seen it before. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? There's nothing. And I always say when I teach people to be improvisers and Craig, we shall do this together. I always say things like, and this is maybe this is heuristic is what's going on. You know, what's happening in the scene? Is it just two people talking? That's not enough. And certainly screenwriters will say, if the only thing that's going on is the only thing that's going on, it's not a great scene. So well, I'll think about status. Who's higher status in the scene? And then there could be fun where the low status character gets high. Uh, what's physical going on? I mean, is somebody chopping some carrots? Are they doing something which they could then do rather angrily or rather lustily or rather <laughs> suspiciously? So we look at phys physical stuff and emotion. You know, we have a game based on changing emotions. But we know, and this is where it's interesting, where actors sometimes struggle with improv. We know it's fun to just go, water bottle. How I hate you for no good reason. You find out why I hate the water bottle later. So it's the opposite of actors who have a script and we justify the emotion. Yes, of course, I hate the water bottle. It was given me by my father, who was this evil authoritarian. And for years, the water bottle has made me upset. Whereas we in improv go, water bottle. Hello. <laughs> and, then, 
We find a reason why the water bottle is so exciting. Yes, of course, this reminds me of the time I was in New Zealand. I went to Auckland. Oh, yes, Auckland. Oh, Wellington. And I've got no idea what I'm talking about, but I just make a choice. I go, let's choose an emotion out of nowhere. So it's kind of the opposite of the actor. So does that help with your heuristic? It, 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 it does help with my heuristics, you know, the mental, the mental models. And you've made me reach for my water bottle now. Uh, which I'll keep with me uh, and and nurture here. You started off by saying that you really enjoyed the audience feedback, uh, the laughter, and uh, then you said the world kind of caved in when everything went into lockdown. Um, so, Neil, I've seen you do improv and I've seen you do comedy in lockdown. How has that transition been and, and how, how does it feel as a comedian? <laughs> Well, you, you, we crave this. We're desperate for this laughter. As somebody said, a stand-up fairly soon after lockdown, it's not just the money. It's kind of something about we need it. Why are we so desperate for this affirmation? However, when I first did some video calls, I realized that the tech technical aspects, unlike now, is if you laughed, you might stop somebody else and they'd be mute and unmute. And, I, and most people who are experienced at video conference will mute themselves. Whereas I say uh, unmute, but then of course it, it gets complicated and messy. So I just had to get used to smiling. <laughs> I had to get used to seeing smiles in, in the boxes um, or just working with two or three people. So um, that's enough for me right now. Um, and also the chat, that's why I'm in the chat, you know, what, what are you thinking? Um, and delayed response, you get an email later, a text, so I've had to sort of work with delayed gratification, I would say. Good delayed gratification, okay. Um, well, um, a, a good and also you laughing, I'm liking that. So um, <laughs> I much prefer interaction like this. And a lot of people have said that comedy, um, it, try better than doing stand-up, try do podcast stuff where there's two or three of you. So there's a sense of being together. And I try and like right. it being like a breakfast DJ um, where – there's two of you in the studio, three, whatever, but you are imagining thousands out there who are enjoying you. And so you've got to stick with the rhythm. You won't get, a, you won't hear the laugh that a comedian will in the comedy club, but you're, you're still trying to have that energy of, I'm, I think they might laugh here. <laughs> well, keep the, keep the live stream comments coming uh, here. Uh, it's great to, it's great to see them. By the way, thank you also for saying that I wasn't alive in 1984. In fact, I was, I just received my first BMX bike. I'm, I'm <laughs> Panther, uh, actually. Uh, and, uh, I see Thomas Schreiber was in Adelaide in, uh, in 84 and unfortunately missed your show. How has the transition, you've taken your comedy skills, uh, into the corporate training world. Uh, I'm really intrigued to hear what you think the crossovers there are. And I've, I've been a beneficiary of that corporate training, by the way. Uh, it, it's wonderful. Uh, but let's hear it from you. Where do you think the parallels are and how does it help people and companies? Well, so 20 years ago, when maybe you had your second BMX bike, who knows? I thought, I, I'm not, from my selfish point of view, I, I'm not sure I want to be doing what I was doing for the rest of my career. As I said, my degree was in economics, social science, looking at social psychology, how do we work together, body language, personality. So I was thinking, oh, I'm interested about how to apply this stuff. And I knew that when I teach improv, I always say, number one, listen. Listen to your fellow player. Listen to your partner. And I'm thinking that's a useful skill in any line of 
life, business, work, organization. So I'm thinking that's, that's interesting. Let's see how we can do that. And how do we work better together? Yeah, that's interesting. How do we co-create? How do you and I, as people in a business, co-create? It's just like improv, really, because you have an idea, I have an idea. If it's going well, we're working towards something. We're not just sending each other in different directions. I'm not dissing you and your idea. I'm working with what you give me. And I don't always know where I'm going to go with it, but I know you gave it to me and you could help me out. These skills of listening, collaboration, open-ended creativity uh, are really helpful. And then I, I just sort of started writing to people and saying, I think there's something here. Um, so I, I, somebody in the newspaper talked about how they had a poet at a leadership course. And I said, if you're prepared to have a poet, you'll have an improviser. I've got, you know, I'm a bit more rigorous than that, surely. And they said, oh, that's good. Yeah, come and do a like an icebreaker at the week, beginning of a week of conference. And I and I heard somebody on the radio and, and uh, at Ashridge Business School, which is in Hertfordshire in the UK, now part of the Halt Business School. And I said, can I come and talk to you? And it turns out he'd been at Cambridge same time as me, had become a management consultant. And he said in the radio program I'd heard, he said, theatre is where moments, psychological, emotional, intellectual, come together almost at the same moment. And I say improv is about listening, and sharing responsibility. And they said, you know, that's just like our leadership models because a leader can't tell everyone what to do. In fact, that's probably not gonna be helpful in terms of you must do this, whatever you think, do this. And we call that, that's the old metaphor. It's uh, uh, the boss knows everything and he used to be, he tells everyone what to do and that's leadership. That's the old model. Um, and uh, somebody's just said, yeah, it, public speaking is helped by doing stand-up comedy training. So. All of the stuff I do is kind of there's there's elements of improv, which is dealing with people, having better conversations, which are improv scenes, coping with opportunities, spotting opportunities, serendipity, um, unexpected openings. On the other hand, unexpected disasters. How do I deal with that? How do I as a leader keep my team together and optimistic in that state of relaxed concentration? Also, um, as um, Steve Pugh has just said, sometimes I'm teaching people uh, more technical skills in terms of confidence to stand up, um, to create rapport. If I listen to what you say, treat it as an offer. We'll get, we'll get rapport. Uh, presentation, and that could be standing up. I teach that as well. Or it could be just kind of, here's an idea. What do you think? And so often salespeople just say, here's the idea. Uh -huh. Let me tell you more about it. Let me tell you more about it rather than what do you think about it? How can I work with what you give me? So I've discovered in the last 20 years that my improv inkling, there's many more applications than I thought. So I teach at London Business School and other business schools improv. I call it leadership in the moment. How do we use these improv skills to be a leader when actually the real world is messy and uncertain? In fact, Craig, I'm sure you've heard of VUCA. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not VUCA, which is on your foot. VUCA. The world, we all know VUCA, it's, the world is disruption, but VUCA is, the world is volatile, the world is uncertain, the world is complex, the world is ambiguous. And if you've ever seen an improv show, it's VUCA central, because at some point my friend is taking me there and she's taking me there and I'm thinking we'll go here. But actually we can, we can somehow navigate a story that involves all the different ideas and we subsume our ego to the story, to what the audience wants. So it's both a skill in itself, improv, but also a mindset, which is how do I negotiate the world which won't always go to plan? 
And sometimes the plan goes badly. I have to pick up the pieces. Sometimes if I'm clever and smart, my plan can become better if I'm looking for opportunities. And I once saw the head of a big global management consultancy speak, trained as a scientist. But he said, you know what? One of the things people don't recognize in business is serendipity somehow. And of course, it's not just luck. It's kind of noticing things. It's noticing things where there's a possibility. He said, my job is just to talk to people. And so you might call that kind of right brain stuff. But he's done so much that in the world, the world isn't just how good your spreadsheet is. Yeah, you need to know your numbers. But somehow it's spotting that human connection, making creative connections that may be, well, I, there's a piece of software. And this is where, Craig, you might say you're a tech guy and say, well, who thought that that app or that idea could be helpful? One of my favorite things is that there's, a, there's a, um, something you can do with newborn children that borrows technology from financial markets predictions. But somebody had to say, hang on, there's a little chip and it's that small. It costs 17p. And that could save the life of a child in the first 10 seconds of their life, which is a very dangerous time. Somebody said, let's borrow that because they had to know it. But then they had to have that leap. And that, was, that yeah, yeah the, the improv is all about connection. And my favorite definition of creativity is bringing together two hitherto unconnected ideas. There's nothing new, but the connection could be the thing. Not the, the, this idea, this idea. So there you go. That's again. What you say is resonating so strongly. I, I, and, and one thing I heard you say earlier as, as well, if I may build, is, uh, is that, um, you know, you need to be okay to um, do some tomfoolery, right? You don't care what people think. And in business, we'd call that psychological safety. You know, to have the courage to take a risk and know that the people around you have your have your back. Uh, the the points that you make around serendipity and leadership in the moment um, never more important. And uh, you know, from my sales before Google, I was a salesperson, and if I I only learned really one thing during that period, and that's the best way to sell is not to, it's to listen. And you've hit all of those points bang on, Neil. Uh, if if there's somebody watching out there uh, who's in a company and wants to engage you uh, to do some some uh, some work with them, improv or other, how do they do that? Well, you can go to neilmalarkey.com. Neil, N-E-I-L, Malarkey, often misspelled M-U-L-L-A-R-K-E-Y. Oh, it's down here. It's down I'm, here. No, I, I'm just saying I'm going to link it. It's not down here okay. yet. I there you go. It. Okay. Um, so, so find me there. I'm on Twitter, Neil Malarkey. I'm on LinkedIn. Facebook um, and uh, the Comedy Store Players. That's easy to go. ComedyStorePlayers.com. You can find me in all these ways. Um, what I find is that in the 20 years I've been doing this, when I started, I wasn't sure. Could I teach people business? And of course, my brother said, how can you teach anybody? I, I can't teach them business. I can teach them the skills that I know, the theater skills, the improv skills. And the more and more I found, actually, I can teach stuff. So, for example, one time somebody said, can you teach pharmaceutical reps how to sell and I said I don't know and I asked a friend whose job was that he said you can teach them how not to sell <laughs> I you can teach them you can teach them how to sell badly oh look at thank you so you know so I did a sketch which is this is bad selling and so often the way to learn something is to watch somebody do it badly as you say so somebody's not listening somebody's saying hi listen to my uh, sales spiel look at my brochure and so I can make it a comedy sketch 
and my website, I have Learn and Laugh. It's like the, I'm the character, Jack Nichols' character in Batman, which somebody else suggested, by the way. But they're kind of the two parts of what I do. And you really learn more if you're laughing. And that's what I feel, that uh, getting people to laugh means that sort of overcomes their, sh their misgivings about, I don't want to be taught in anything. No, I can't teach you your job, but I can help you learn how to do your job better. 100%. Um, James Batchelor's uh, asked a question here. Uh, how do you feel for those, maybe especially in the arts, for whom 2020 should have been their breakout year? It must be a, a, a tough prospect to behold. This is awful. I just don't know what to say to those people because when I was coming out, I, I said I was on an unemployment benefit. Uh, then I was able to do a thing called the uh, Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Margaret Thatcher gave us enough money so we didn't have to claim, uh, and we, it was taxable income, but it was, I could start a business with a year of this. And uh, then I could, if I did earn money, I didn't have to declare, you know, it didn't have to come off supplementary benefit. But the thing is, what are these people going to do? This is going to be your breakout year. You've just started, you're doing well, and you can't perform anymore. It's really tough. And we, this, the United Kingdom is a world leader in the creative industries. Billions and billions of pounds brought to the exchequer. Mil billions and billions of pounds, visitors, tourists. I just don't know. I feel sorry. And James, thank you for asking this because we need to we need to nurture those artists, writers, performers, finding ways. And what I'm I'm hopeful is that people are finding ways to use video conference, podcast, audio, text to get their message across. That there is there are some video conference type applications. I've done a StreamYard one myself. Uh, with a group called Shoot from the Hip, and they're using technology. Uh, of course, it's it's not the same, but we can do ways, and we can get suggestions through chat and so forth. But that thing that I had with Mike Myers trundling around the country, putting the props in my Ford Fiesta, getting home at 3 a.m., coming home from a tough gig, that's not happening. So uh, I think it's going to be tough, and I think we need to look very carefully about how we come back. Can we do socially distanced performances. I know I can because I've performed in Edinburgh to people who are very socially distanced. You have seven people in a, in a room for 200. <laughs> um, it's good practice. Uh, however, uh, there's all sorts of things that, like, for example, when I speak, I'm spitting all over the place. So we have to be careful. Uh, when I did a thing for a, an arts program about performing, they said, well, actors, you know, two meters maybe. But for opera singers, it was six meters. That's how far they send it out so we have to be careful so we have drive-in opera drive-in comedy but let's let's really look and i want everybody's watching this to think how can i help the performing arts and indeed the arts in general museums galleries orchestras music how can i help and and it feels like give a donation yeah but when they can open just go attend something uh in the broader sense get your children do a course there's lots of courses going on now which are virtual still um, teaching people improv, singing, whatever. Uh, let's try and find ways to help those people because it's vital to our culture. It's not just being nice to love is lazy people like me. And I'm lucky because I'm, you know, that much older, but it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And I hope that we can have some thing where performers can come back in a, I don't know, six months time. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, and also I think, you know, the, the glass half full, uh, it's also half empty. And which way do you look at it? Uh, 
people like you, Neil, are, are demonstrating how you can pivot your art to a different canvas. And I think that's happening in music. It's happening. The National Theatre has been on uh, YouTube. Uh, different uh, musical performers are performing uh, uh, on uh, online in, in some shape or form. Travis Scott did a gig in the Fortnite gaming environment. So I, I think if you seize the opportunity, there can be new, new possibilities to use a new canvas with that art in a, in a different way that you couldn't do live as well. So um, great... Um, uh, great call to action, though. I think well, it's uh, I, 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 yeah, because also you you can you can play to an audience anywhere in the world. <laughs> exactly. So in terms of the offer, the yes and there's possibilities. I can do a gig for people in anywhere without having to go there. Um, but what I'm what I'm sensing from from all the list you gave me is that there's an appetite. People want music, theatre, comedy, art, um, and we need to think about how to deliver it. For example, I read in the first three months, as you say, the National Theatre, it had something like 11 years worth of full houses in three months of YouTube uh, shows. So how do we how do we nurture that audience? How do we satisfy that audience? Most of whom I expect couldn't come to London, many of whom may not be able to afford regular prices. So can we kind of have a, a more blended approach? For example, the Comedy Store, we're thinking... If we can't open to a full house of 400, could we have 50 people, 100 people, and then live stream? Uh, let's look at the technology. Let's, And that's what I'm liking. Lots of technological firms are saying, let's kind of not worry too much yet. Let's kind of share our, our capabilities because this is bigger than any one firm. Uh, so there are possibilities, and we can see it bringing people together. I'm just thinking about the 22-year-old person who is finding it hard to make a living. Um, and it's going to find it harder maybe in the autumn when things have got, you know, more realistic, perhaps. Uh, so I'm also thinking about all the people like you, Craig, and others working in firms that have been going full time. You've got all this money. You've been earning 100%. Go out and spend it if you can, please. Yeah, I think it's a great it's a great call to action. There's certainly no shortage in, uh, in desire to consume all of those entertaining things. So I think it's a really good shout Neil, let's change gears. The the people watching, I'm sure, would not forgive me if I didn't ask you about uh, how you met Mike Myers and, and what it was like working with him and others over the years. So I met him. He, I was working, doing a show with my former Footlights chums, and he'd come to the theatre and said, can I help? And there he was, sitting in a wheelchair, because um, that's all that was left. He was. We'd use the regular chairs. And he made me laugh. He just made me laugh. And uh, I said, you're still in touch. Yeah, yeah, we're still in touch. Yeah. Um, I helped him two years ago. I went to L.A. to help with a, a character he, he was doing, uh, who was hosting a, uh, the, the gong show, uh, Tommy Maitland, an English character. So I, I kind of English it up a bit. So we still and he was he often comes over to the U.K. Um, to hang out. He loves he loves World War Two stuff. <laughs> So he might go to the, the World War II sites in France and stuff like that. So um, we hang out, we have dinner, and he's still my friend. But uh, he made me laugh. And I said, I, let me take you to comedy clubs. And I did. And stand-up was a thing, not sketch comedy. But we did a sketch comedy thing called Malarkey and Myers. We did the Edinburgh Festival. We we basically did, Mike will describe it, we did the stuff comedy that you, you do to make girls laugh in kitchens at parties. <laughs> Because you're not, you know, uh, you're not the Adonis on the dance floor. 
But uh, girls and boys like people who make them laugh. Uh, so that was our thing. The sketches, we did a sketch where it was a B-movie and I played the whole population of a, of a Midwest town. And he was the guy trying to get everyone together to fight the aliens who, of course, because it was a 1950s B-movie, were communists, really. Um, and so it's just great to work with him. But I have, I have never worked with somebody who works so hard. So I had a job briefly before I signed up for the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, working for the, the local council housing department, which meant a lot of photocopying and filing stuff. So I'd work nine till five, whatever. Then I'd have my dinner, go to his house, and we work on our sketch, work, 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 on this 10-minute sketch. It took us three months to get this absolutely right. And you can find it actually on YouTube. It's called Dr. Wicked. Uh, okay. Wicked. You can find it on YouTube. It's from Edinburgh, 86. In fact, they say it's 85. But um, uh, it was all behind, you know, what could you do behind a sofa? If only people could. So you might have seen them in Wayne's World where he goes, he kind of walks down some stairs where he's just walking along or he goes down an escalator. Like that. I, I'm not sure if I'm doing that right. But anyway, he could do it really well. And he made me laugh by doing that because we were out. I first met him. We'd had dinner a few times. I took him to comedy clubs and he'd walk the other side of a car and got to go down as if he'd gone downstairs. So we did a whole sketch based on that thing. We'd often write, you know, let's do 12 jokes and try and get a story around it. So you can see writing's very different. We made a Super 8 movie that we would dub live. And uh, he could do, we'd look, oh, look, there's a helicopter. And I might could go like this. Like that. And so it was all, and then we had an exterior of the Albert Hall. <laughs> and we pretended he was a character in the Albert Hall. And my friend was a lookalike. So we kidnapped the real one. So the thing is, Mike is so creative. He's so funny. And he worries about making it as good as he can. So that's why um, Austin Powers, Wayne's World, Shrek, he's always trying to make it as good as he can. So he'll do rewrites. They'll do retakes and stuff. And he and even on occasion, uh, you know, he was offered big money to do a certain character. And he just he had written the script himself and it wasn't quite as good as he wanted. So he, he won't just take the money and run. He's a real um um he took takes great pride in his work so anyway yeah. so he makes me he made me laugh he's still the funniest person i've ever worked with he just has that humor and again it's funny he's the third of three boys and in his family the eldest was the funny one and mike was learning from his older brother and he got to be in second city he was uh, he graduated high school he could either go study film or go to second city and he went to second city in the end came to england because he liked monty python he has an english passport he wanted to be at the home of Peter Sellers and Monty Python. And we started doing this double act. And then he, he went back to Canada because his dad wasn't well. And they'd invited him to be in the main Toronto Second City Company. But we kept in touch. Uh, I helped him write So I Married an Ex-Murderer. Uh, we did our show in Toronto. We did a show called Mike Myers in a show with his friend Neil Malarkey from England. Um, so descriptive. Uh, exactly. And we even had a, a, a thing made, you know, a, a jacket. And I helped him on a couple of uh, things. That, so I made an ex-roder and then this character he was doing. So the thing about Mike is he makes you laugh, uh, but he takes it very seriously. He, he doesn't want to see, you know, it was, is that the right word? Is that the right order? Uh, so it just shows you how the difference is. And he's, a, he's also the best improviser I've ever worked. He taught us. So he and a, a woman called Kid Hollerbach um, would teach Paul Merton and me and others how to do improv. And they had both uh, learned in the United States, or he'd learned in Canada and then Chicago, uh, ultimately, and then she'd done in San Francisco. So he's a great improviser. He's a great listener. And he'll take a very simple idea 
and build it into a great story. He'll commit to the character, if you like, all the things that if I was doing an improv workshop, I'd say, watch him. He knows how to do it. He makes the scene interesting. And Mike's um, instruction to us, as I said before, an improv scene can be a bit boring. And he said, always think about why have the gods of improv chosen this scene now? Why these two characters? Why is it important? And so he would approach it from a writer point of view, which is uh, make the audience care straight away by having something that is in jeopardy, whatever. So again, another heuristic, if you like, which is what's the scene about? Is it about love, loss, um, secrets, ownership, status, whatever? So these are the kind of ways that you make improv scenes better. And as a writer, you might think what's really going on in the scene rather than just two people talking. Well, I tell you, one of my favourite scenes from the Austin Powers movies was the one that you were in, actually, and it's one of the most famous scenes of all of the Austin Powers movies. Uh, can you talk about that the, from the first one? Thank you. So uh, the thing was, Mike, um, after Wayne's World 2, I think he was still in Saturday Night Live, not sure what to do next, and he sent me this script, and I, Austin Powers, and I said, this is hilarious. He said, is it really? Well, I'm not sure. Um, and then somebody at New Line Cinema said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, it was tricky because it was a character, unlike Wayne, that people didn't know. So they tried it out in a few theaters in L.A. And he rang me and said, I really want you to play this character. It's tricky because um, the way Hollywood movies are sold, they have to get a certain number of famous people. <laughs> and luckily, he got a lot of famous people to do other parts. Elizabeth Hurley, uh, Rob Lowe, uh, Michael York, you know, so it turns out he got enough famous people that he could have some schmuck from England play that character. <laughs> and he just knew I could nail it because he, I just had to be English, sort of supercilious, keep a straight face and say, Swedish made penis enlarger. <laughs> we'd have to go to Liz, no, this sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. <laughs> um, and so Austin Powers is very roughly one of the characters based on my best friend. I'll, I'll say no more, but my friend is a lawyer. Um, and uh, so like most of Mike's characters, he's taken somebody real, somebody else real and mix it up with his own sort of input. Anyway, so he said, come and do this. And it was a very low budget movie because nobody knew about Austin Powers. So he said, stay at my house. Uh, I'll get somebody to pick you up from the airport. We'll get you home. Stay at my house. And, you know, it'll take a day, basically. Um, and so... By 4 p.m. on my day, I was on with Liz Hurley and Mike Myers and people around, and we had to hurry up because we only had this place for one day. And luckily, I, I got it. But the director, called Jay Roach, really kind, lovely man, uh, helped me feel comfortable because it's hard to be a, a day player in those circumstances. And uh, it was fine. And, and people remember the scene, the Swedish-made penis enlarger scene. Um, <laughs> okay. However, by the time it came to Austin Powers 3, it's been a great success. So it's gold member. And Mike says, I got, I got another part for you. I want you to play a doctor. Come out and, uh, you know, we'll put, your, we'll put you up in a lovely hotel, bring your wife. It's going to be great. Uh, it'll take a couple of days. And, of course, because movies are like this, it took about two weeks because uh, it was a complicated scene. I played a doctor who says, oi, stop, stop that because um, um, he's on the shoulders of Mini-Me trying to get away. And I'm the doctor saying you need a medical. And so Mini-Me takes some apple juice and spurts it out as if he's giving us a, a urine sample that's, you know the crotch type. so that's gold number three gold member and then i pull a gun on him and uh, mini me drops out like uh, you know there's an alien being given birth to but it's one of those things really difficult because mike's on the kirby wire which is wires that keep you on uh, attached to the ceiling 
um, on Vern. Sadly, departed Vern. So he actually couldn't stand on Vern, but he had to make it look as if he were. So that takes a lot of time <laughs> to do. So I'm there for two weeks hanging out in LA. So quite a different experience. Um, and uh, as you'll see with Mike, Jay was a very good director for Mike, was that they'd sort of shoot the scene, get it right, and then say to Mike, just play, just have a go, do some funny stuff. And so he would, uh, certainly with um, uh, Dr. Evil and, and the other character, uh, sort of play, you know, once the scene's finished, play some more stuff. And it's that what sometimes gave extra life and fun to the scene when Mike would be, you know, off script, as it were. Ad living and included in the film, well, a marvelous scene and probably one one of the most memorable certainly for for me. Um, your your own alter ego, L. Vaughan Spencer, uh, of course the uh, the star at the centre of Don't Be Needy, Be Succeeding. There you go, there it is again. Um, is um, L. Vaughan by there uh, by by any chance there? And and can he help us close with any advice? Uh, that <laughs> That well, you have uh, aspiring comedians or improv people or others. Well, the, the he would say, uh, Elvon Spencer, his motto is don't be needy, be succeeding. He's basically all the motivational gurus I've ever seen combined with the worst part of myself. And it's great fun to play him. He has a ponytail and a goatee and an orange suit. And he's just full of himself. It's great fun to play a baddie, to play an idiot. And basically he'd say things like, you know, moisturize. Uh, the, the way to success is through hair. Uh, make sure your hair is right. So, for example, Craig, there we are. St uh, a side part invites demons in. Baldness defies the dragon, but sticky up hair frightens children. This is this is all part of his thing. It's like feng shui or feng shui. It's tong shui. The kind of the uh, the way hair can affect your future. And he uh, he would he do gangster motivator raps. Yo, I is not J-Lo, I is Elvo, I is the badass cyber coach, I is the shaman for the layman, it's a no-brainer, I'm your management trainer, think of me as a safe container, I is your tutor for the future, I hope it suits you, I do alchemy from the balcony of your psyche, my mission is the fruition of intuition in which I give tuition, my nutrition is your lack of ambition, my enemy is your inhibition, I is the sage for the new age of rage, it's time to turn the page. I is your exultant consultant. I is your facilitator like an elevator. I will take you to the top floor of your personal metaphor. Get off your couch, you slouch potato. I is the gangster motivator. Where do we go from there? What a fantastic note to end on. Um, Neil Malaki, you've been brilliant. Um, you know, anyone who's interested in engaging uh, Neil, I, I highly recommend it. If you haven't been to the comedy store play, uh, players uh, on a Wednesday and, or a Saturday, please do it. I think some of the shows are playing online through the Comedy Store website at the moment. Uh, thanks, Shane. Huh? Brilliant. I agree. So, Neil, thank you very much for joining us. You're an inspiration. Thank you. Uh, we have one coming out next week, uh, which is coming out July the 8th. It's available for a week. It's a pre-lockdown show, so filmed in front of an audience last year. All the laughs are there. And please, it's funny, but also it may be a small way of uh, making the Comedy Store a viable going concern into the next year. I'll link it below. Thanks, Neil. Thank you.